0: So we're going to go ahead and start Session 2. Uh, and this one is titled, Consider the Sparrows. And this is just on uh, anxiousness and, and fear, which are topics that I think, let's say, generally pair pretty well together. So uh, on the front end, it's, it's probably worth saying the, the topic we just covered, discontentment and contentment, is, I in my opinion, let's say the seedbed from which a lot of these other issues grow out of. Um, So let's say, for example, if you're discontent in something, that eventually uh, can grow and flourish into an anxiety about that thing, uh, a worry that you won't be able to control it. And ultimately, let's say at the tail end, if you look uh, um, to the bottom, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, let's say, depression and let's say long-term effects of that. And at the end of the day, if you were to ask someone who's depressed, let's say, how are they doing? They could usually point to something in their lives that they think if this was fixed or if this was different, I don't think I'd quite be... This way. Now that's not true in all cases, we'll we'll deal with that topic more in depth at that point, but it's worth saying that these are kind of scaffolded in let's say an order of operations where I think they kind of grow one into the other. Uh, So with that being said, as we start uh, on this one on dealing with anxiety and fear, uh, the first thing I wanna do is just say in general, uh, while I said on the front end, anxiousness is something that our our world struggles a ton with. Often uh, I think that it's not just anxiousness, it's also let's say attempts to treat that um, in many different kinds of ways. So for instance, uh, if you have, I don't know, uh, been, at, if you, if you follow like the world of pop culture, or the world of let's say social trends, uh, something that's happened in the last 10 years, I think that's about as, as far as I've been aware of it is this trend towards, uh, dealing with anxiousness by some or other iteration of what's called minimalism. So if you're, let's say if you're anxious about, I don't know, social media and you think that that drives anxiety in your life, The solution is to get rid of that thing. So delete social media, maybe delete your account, maybe, let's say, uninstall all those apps on your phone. Um, Let's say you're anxious about material stuff. This drives an anxiety or an insecurity within you. Uh, The minimalist solution was, okay, well, get rid of all the things that you you don't need and kind of pare it down to the bare essentials and find, let's say, contentment or happiness in these bare essentials. Now there is, let's say, a bit of wisdom in this, I think a, a pretty common wisdom. Um, and it, it, but this is what we would call a, a philosophical wisdom, right? Even the old uh, philosophers, for example, Plato said something to this effect. He said the greatest wealth that we can have is to live with, is to live content with very little. That's what Plato would say about how do we find contentment? How, basically, how do you treat anxiety and wanting things? Well, you could uh, you could be content with what you have, and this is a good treatment, and that works as so far as you have the mental fortitude to hold that line. Um, that's pretty common with the stoic philosophers is just like reframing mentally what's going on and that'll solve the issue for you. Another, let's say uh, parable uh, that is often told, um, is of, uh, of a farmer and his wife and they think their house is too small because they are having a bunch of kids and they're feeling like they need more, but they don't have money to buy a bigger house. So they go to the local uh, rabbi and they ask him, uh, you know, we're feeling discontent. Uh, can you help us with this problem? And he says, okay, Take the chickens that you have on your farm, and move them into your house. They don't know how that's gonna help, but they they do it. And after a week, they go back to the rabbi, they're like, this is not working. The chickens are everywhere, the house feels smaller. And then he says, okay, take the pigs and move them into your house. And they come and they take the pigs and move them into their house, they listen. A week later, they come back and they're like, this is unbearable. Then he says, take the cows and move them into your house. And they go and they take the cows, they live for a couple of days and they run back to the rabbi, they said, this is absolutely not working. And he says, okay, take all the animals and move them back out of your house, back into the farm And they do this, and what ends up happening at the end of it is they feel, oh, how spacious our house is and how wonderful, right? This is, let's say, a a common parable dealing with, okay, how do you deal with contentment? Well, one way is just to simply reframe your current situation. Now, that works until it doesn't, because only some things are treatable by, let's say, changing your lens, right? Because sometimes uh, we don't quite know what is the cause or the drive of our anxiousness. And so it only works uh, so far as you can, let's say, really treat that uh, discontentment, which I think ultimately bleeds into a, a kind of anxiousness. So uh, when we're looking at this uh, topic, the first thing I want to do is, let's say, get a, a general flavor of what scripture says about anxiety, and then we'll, we'll dive into, okay, how does this accord with our worldview? So uh, the text on this that I definitely want to turn to is Matthew uh, chapter 6. And we're going to be at verse uh, 34. And again, those are just listed out in the handout as well. So this is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says this in verse 34 of Matthew 6. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is Jesus teaching about, say, seek things. How do you find contentment? And his ultimate, let's say, conclusion of this argument is, Don't be anxious. And so, if you're asking the question, okay, what what does he think the solution to not being anxious is, you just go back a couple of verses. uh, It's really starting in verse 25 of this argument. Uh, But in summary, he says something to the effect of, consider that God takes care of all of his creation. Uh, Consider that God cares for uh, the sparrows. Uh, Consider that God cares for the, the, the creation, like flowers. And then he says in verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink for we or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So the basic argument of Jesus, something in the effect of, if God cares for lower aspects of his creation, animals and grass, and he has created you, will he not also care for you and love you and, and gently, uh, look after you? Will he not care for you? He's a good father. Will he not do this? It's argument from the lesser to the greater. If God cares for little animals, won't he care for also you? And then the conclusion of this is, so don't seek your satisfaction in this life. Rather, seek your, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So, The basic idea is shift your lens, shift your focus off of this world onto Christ's kingdom. And then there's kind of a twofold command. One is therefore do not be anxious. That's kind of the command and the conclusion of his reasoning. But then on the front end, you'll notice also he identifies anxiousness. This is in verse 30 as let's say a lack of faith. He says, oh, ye of little faith or you of little faith. So now we can ask the question, okay, is Jesus being particularly brutal when he's looking at our anxious state? And let's say. He's not very concerned or caring about it, or is he, uh, is he dealing with it, I think, uh, appropriately? On the one hand, we could say that Jesus is simply uh, being uh, calloused, or he's not really understanding because he calls it a, a, a lack of faith. Imagine you go up to someone who says to you, you know, I'm, I'm really anxious about something, and you say, just have more faith. That would be kind of a callous way to, to treat that person, right? That's not at the heart of what Jesus is saying. He's saying something, in effect, if you want to know where your anxiousness has gone off, if you want to know why you are anxious, it's a faith issue. But it's not a faith issue in the sense that, oh, if you had more faith, then, you know, you wouldn't be anxious. It's where is the object of your faith? And he points to them to a different object, right? The first object is the object that the Gentiles look for, verse 32. The Gentiles seek after all these things and let's say the, the parenthetical assumption is here in this life, in this world, clothing, food, satisfaction, and then his command to them, or his argument is verse 33, but instead of doing that, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's his argument. So when he says little faith, it does, it's not referring to, let's say, the quantity of faith that they have, it's, it's, it's referring to the object of their faith. Their faith is deficient because they're looking in the wrong place to find satisfaction. That's what's off about their faith. So if you meet a Christian who's anxious about something, the thing to do is not to say, well, just have more faith. That would be to, let's say, misapply this. The thing to really to say is, okay, let's triage and see where is your faith not finding its contentment in God? Where is your faith off base from finding that kind of contentment? And so with that, let's say, general view in mind, uh, let's look at a couple of other texts. Um, I'm trying to think which one I should go to first. Uh, we were already in Philippians, but uh, let's turn back there to Philippians 4, and this will be in verse 6. And I'll read uh, from this section, starting at the beginning of this thought in verse uh, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now this is Paul's treatment of anxiousness. Right before he makes the argument, essentially, that he has found the source of contentment, right? And we talked about this just in the last session. His source of contentment is... The father uh, and his source of contentment is outside of his material circumstances. And on the front end of this conclusion, he makes the argument, don't be anxious, but instead of being anxious, through prayer and supplication, make your requests be made known to God. That's perfectly in line with what Jesus just said, which Jesus just said, get your eyes off of this world and look at the kingdom of heaven. And how would you get your eyes off this world and onto the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is not something you physically look at and say, there it is, right? So how do you get your eyes off of this world and seek after the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, Father, your, your kingdom come, your will be done. So seeking the kingdom of heaven starts actually kind of in a root of prayer, right? You have to pray to orient your heart and mind into the kingdom of heaven. And then Paul essentially says something to the effect of, okay, if you're anxious, let your request be made unto God. He's, he's kind of going in that same direction. Through prayer, seek these things. Okay, so let's say someone is struggling with anxiety. Uh, is the counsel then to tell them, just pray? Just pray and it will all be better. Well, not quite. It's not quite, let's say, the total answer to anxiety uh, because there's uh, more refinement that needs to be understood, particularly because we have a bad, I think, typical understanding of prayer and our world sees that as more of like an escapism mentality. And I, I wanna convince you that it's not, okay? So that's gonna be the thrust of this. It's not just that we escape and we ascend to some different mental state. It's not a meditative practice for Christians. So. Okay, let's look at first of the world's view of this, this issue. Okay, if you're anxious and you, and you go to the world and you say, how do I deal with my anxiousness? And you were to get the advice of, let's just say, a college student or a business professional or someone who's not a believer, or maybe someone who identifies as a believer, but let's say doesn't have a Christian worldview, uh, they would say something to the effect of, uh, well, you can deal with your anxiousness in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, you could find friendships that, let's say, drown out your deep feeling of insecurity, your deep anxiousness. Uh, you could pursue pleasure and happiness in the form of drugs and alcohol, and if you could fill the void that way. You could dull yourself, essentially, to that feeling of anxiousness. Or you could, let's say, spiritually ascend through meditation to a higher state where, in which you don't feel anxious. These are, let's say, the three... And there, it's not an exhaustive list, but I think the three common treatments of our world to the point where now, if you just go into the, the broad culture of the world, it's not uncommon for people to recommend things like meditation and self-care and things like that as a source or a solution to anxiousness. In fact, uh, mm-hmm. there's, it's, it's not been all that uncommon uh, for a secular workplace to advise its workers to say, have some form of religious spiritual practice in their general health, because it's one component of your health, right? It, it helps to treat anxiousness. It helps to treat despair and all the rest, but people see this as a component of health. So that's, that's, let's say, the world's lens. We can compartmentalize it, and we can treat anxiousness like it's a disease. I think the Christian worldview is gonna say something to the effect of, I don't think, the Christian worldview says something to the effect of, uh, any kind of meditative, psychosomatic, therapeutic treatment of anxiousness is at best a temporary shot that won't really get you through very far. We know this because you have to keep coming back to that thing regularly. So for example if it's meditation well you feel let's say in the moment of meditating uh, you've emptied your mind you're thinking about I don't know things you're content with or whatever Uh, let's say an ideal life. If you're meditating you're anxious insofar as you stay in that moment but when you leave and you let's say go to your job or go to a particular pinch point in your life or a stress well, then you find yourself, let's say, not really being able to deal with that anxiousness very well. So, same thing with drugs and alcohol, right? It's a never-ending cycle of needing more to numb you to the thing around you. Um, And there's really no amount of pleasure that you can do that can, let's say, outweigh the scales of anxiousness because uh, at best, drugs and alcohol and their effects only last for periods of time. And if you seek to get, let's say, a permanent kind of fix on those things, you're not gonna have a long lifespan, or certainly not a long healthy lifespan. And so we we can't seek, let's say, solutions that the world gives us, because they're only temporary solutions at best. And when I say temporary, I don't mean five minutes. Sometimes it could last for years and years and years. But at the end of it, at the end of that runway, it's a finite period of time before you feel massively dissatisfied. The world sees any kind of anxiety as problematic. So one of the solutions that the Stoics would say is actually, or the Buddhists would say this as well, is the way to cure yourself of anxiety is actually to remove yourself from detachments to the world. Don't feel attached to friends. Don't feel attached to your job. Don't even feel attached to your own life because that attachment is what creates anxiousness and fear because you fear you might lose it. You fear you might, I don't know, not have it tomorrow. You fear things. You be, you be, this makes you anxious. And this is again is where I think the biblical worldview speaks into anxiousness because for example, if you look at Philippians, Paul says, on the one hand, don't be anxious. Uh, but actually, in other places where Paul makes an argument about anxiousness, he says something to the effect of, uh, therefore, be anxious. And it gets translated in your English Bible as care for other things. The word for anxiousness is, is care. So, for example, Paul says, uh, the husband who remains, un- uh, the man who remains unmarried, he's anxious for the things of God. He cares for the things of God as opposed to being, let's say, bear down with the cares of his wife. The married man is anxious for the needs of his wife. So he is in some way detracted from caring for the bride. This is Paul's argument about, you know, let's say the advice of marriage, but he uses the term anxiousness actually in the same way you would use the the term to care. So what Paul's not saying here in Philippians 4 is don't care about things. He's talking about don't care about things obsessively. Don't be anxious about those things, okay? So that, that's the point. Uh, Paul will el- other, elsewhere in, in scripture say something to the effect of, uh, I'm very anxious for the things of God. I'm very anxious for the gospel to go forth. I'm anxious for the church. So anxiousness, let's say, as a idea is not necessarily a sin, but anxiousness, let's say, unhinged, untamed anxiousness is a problem. So then the Christian worldview doesn't see anxiousness itself as the, the problem and detachment from care or anxiousness as, as the solution. Because anxiousness points to something. It points to that we actually care, that we actually have an investment in this world. That's a good thing for believers. Okay? One of the uh, writers that I think treats this topic well uh, says, defines, uh, let's say, sinful anxiousness this way. He says, sinful anxiousness is being consumed by otherwise legitimate concerns while simultaneously taking our eyes off of Jesus. Sinful anxiousness is being consumed by otherwise legitimate concerns while taking our eyes off of Jesus. Jesus. So for a Christian, sinful anxiousness is not caring for your friend and, and being concerned that they might find the Lord and they may know that they might know him. That would not be an anxiousness that's sinful. You're caring for them. A sinful anxiousness would be doing that to the extent that you stop praying about it and all you do is you fixate and you worry. That would be a sinful kind of anxiousness. So for a Christian, we're not seeking detachment from anxiety or anxiousness. We're actually seeking to take those anxieties, those worries, those concerns to God. So a Christian doesn't say, get rid of your anxiousness. It says, throw it to God and he'll deal with it. This is the Christian view of how do we deal with fear? How do we deal with anxiety? We take it to God in prayer. In fact, John Flavel, one of the Puritans, has defined, let's say, good anxiety in this way. (laughs) He says, uh, as long as the fear, you can also say, as long as the anxiety, awakens you to pray, it is serviceable to your soul. But when it only produces distractance and despondency in your mind, it is your sin and Satan's snare. So how does he define sinful anxiousness or sinful fear? He says, as long as it's driving you to prayer, it's actually good and edifying. When it drives you into despondency and despair and it's taking away from prayer, that's when you've identified a sinful anxiety. It's a, a, I admit, a moving definition, but... I think we can at least grasp that idea in our heads, right? Paul says here, don't be anxious. What's the solution? It's not don't care, but take those cares and throw them to God. That's the solution. That's how Paul says you should not be anxious. He's not saying don't care, detach yourself from the things of this world. As Christians, we're supposed to be invested in this world. We're supposed to care for our friends and family. We're supposed to care for their souls. So that's, that's one view of anxiousness. Okay, so that's a, let's say a view of anxiousness for other people. Now let's ask the question, How does a Christian deal with anxiousness within their own soul that's, let's say, more rooted in uh, a doubt of God or a doubt of God's goodness? Uh, Let's say we've read these things about God. How do we walk through this life in a way that's confident that God, let's say, will indeed save us? How do we find a security from our anxious hearts? And for that, we're going to have to do a a quick survey of a couple of texts. The first one I'll look at is Genesis 15.1, and we'll go from there. In the narrative of Genesis, this uh, is Abram, uh, who has shortly, uh, shortly before this, left the promised land, left his life, left his wealth, left everything behind, family, friends, basically every known security that a human can have in this life. And he's gone and he's traveled to a distant land. And these are the words of God to Abram uh, in that time, verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward. Your shall, your, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord, God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abram is expressing, let's say, fear, concern, anxiousness, at the promise that God gave to him will not be fulfilled. He's expressing all his, let's say, legitimate concerns, right? He doesn't have a kid. He has no security, no future. He's not even achieved the promised land yet, which God has all promised to him back in chapter 12. And here God says in verse four, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven the numbers, and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offering be. And he, which is Abram, believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. Now, God doesn't stop there. He doesn't just make him a vain promise out into the world. He says, verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? A legitimate concern. How am I to know? Verse 9. God says to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over and against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now I'm gonna summarize verse 12 through 16. God is going to make a covenant with Abraham, sealed with blood that he himself is going to validate. He's going to walk through it on his own. And he's essentially going to say to Abram something like, let's say an answer to his question in verse 8, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I to know these promises are true? And God's going to not only promise to Abraham, but he's going to make a covenant with Abraham that's essentially, my word is sealed on these things. So when Abram has a concern, will the promise given to me actually be actualized? God doesn't say, just have more faith. God actually meets Abram where he's at and, and in a real tangible way, Covenant with Abraham. Now, this is not some strange thing as it, as it seems to us. This would be uh, that culture's equivalent of God pulling out a legal contract and signing his name on both ends of the agreement and saying, it will happen. It's sealed by an eternal, immutable law. This is what's called a Caesarian Treaty, and the killing of the animals is all part of, let's say, the sealing of that covenant. If God doesn't uphold his end of the bargain, what happens is he would have to be, let's say, torn in two just like these animals were. That's kind of the the pictorial statement of this contract. So when Abram has doubts or concerns or anxieties about the things that God actually promised to him, think Christian, if you are anxious about your salvation or the things that God has promised to you, sanctification, justification, and you ask the Lord, how am I to know that I shall actually possess these things? Keep this in mind. God has actually made a promise with his people to actualize the promises that he has given. This is not just God's word out in the abyss. He's actually made a promise. And for New Testament believers, we don't just have a vain theory on what that promise looks like. We actually have a picture. Jesus on the cross, crucified in our stead as a seal of the covenant promise that he made all the way back to Abram. Now, if you're thinking as a Christian, okay, I'm anxious about my salvation. I'm anxious about my sanctification. I'm anxious about these things. God doesn't say, don't care about those things, detach yourself from them. He says, care about them deeply cast your cares to me, but also not only did I tell you to cast your cares to me, I actually gave you a sign and a picture, a regular reminder that you can revisit and go to so that you can be sure that these promises are not null and void. These promises are actual and real. And so far as we participate in what's called the common means of grace, the reading of God's word, the encouragement of the saints, the taking in the Lord's supper, these are reminders to us of the promise and the seal of that promise, which is Christ. So with that, I'll I'll pause in this section. If you have questions for me, uh, feel free to ask them. If not, we'll once again take a break and then we will move into the third session.